Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege, and I pray that we understand it is a privilege to be here. A lot of places we could be tonight, no doubt, but Lord, I am thankful you have assembled this group, and I pray and trust that everyone is here will hear from you, that we will be challenged in our thinking, and uh, Lord, as uh, we think about these things that will be presented, that it will have an impact upon us, that it might transform our heart, that our thinking would be renewed, that we won't be conformed to this culture anymore, but we will be transformed. And Lord, we know that that takes place in the renewing of the mind through the washing of your word. And so the things that we'll grapple with and wrestle with uh, we weigh them, and we weigh them through the authority of Scripture. Help us to be reminded through this conference how important, how vital your word is. So I ask for every speaker that speaks that you will use them. And I pray for every listener that listens that we will hear. Open our ears, Lord, that we may hear you. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Our speaker tonight is Dr. Richard Howell. Dr. Howell is professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, and um, I'll let him tell you a little bit more about his time there. Uh, I have already heard through many in years gone by, this being our eighth year, I don't know how many years have gone by, brother, that I haven't heard somebody say, you've got to get Dr. Howell out here. You will absolutely love, you've got, you've got to get Dr. Howell out here. I am thankful that this year we have Dr. Richard Howe. If you would please welcome him tonight. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much. You know, I was thinking when uh, Pastor mentioned the Q and A, uh, and I think he might have even said that was his favorite part. What I generally lobby conference organizers to do is just do the Q and just leave out the A, because you get a whole lot more questions in, and it's a whole lot easier on all of us, but they never listen to me, so whatever. So I'm looking forward to the Q&A. We'll, we'll, I've learned a long time ago how to say, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I have no idea. Ask uh, Ramon, you know, or something, something like that. Uh, so we're going to talk about the, the, the truth about truth. Now, I don't know. I had the opportunity and the pleasure and honor this morning speaking at uh, Wayne Christian School, and so I don't know if anybody here was there is anybody there? Okay, all right. So let me just apologize in advance because you're going to hear some of the same jokes. But you can just sort of fake a laughter. You know, you don't have to go, oh, well, we heard that one already. It wasn't funny the first time or, or something. But at any rate, just, just work with me here. Uh, so that's why I like speaking at different conferences in different cities because I get to use the same jokes over and over again, except when I do the same talk two times in a row in the same venue. I have to watch out for that. Uh, so we're going to talk about the truth about truth. That's a deliberately uh, kind of provocative title, perhaps. Now, uh, by the way, it was worth coming tonight just seeing that effect right there. You know, they don't give this job to chimps, you know. Uh, in fact, I want to see that again here. Let's see if we can just get, go right there. There you go. I need a sound effect with it. All right, any questions? Yes, yeah, Let me just invite you that uh, a lot of the PowerPoints that I've put together over the years a lot of them, not all of them, were born out of teaching that I do at the seminary, 
which means that I have the luxury of teaching three hours a week for 14 weeks to cover a topic, okay? Invariably then, these PowerPoints are just huge. And so when I get to go to conferences, and, and you, understandably, you don't want to get in, that, in the weeds that much and the details is not that important necessarily for our purposes. So I uh, just hide a lot of the slides and pick out the, the parts that are more relevant to the, to the uh, conference theme and that kind of stuff. But I want to invite you to get the PDF deck of the entire PowerPoint. Uh, so what you do is you go to my website, which is richardghow.com. So one night I had this just incredible attack of humility, and I bought and named an internet domain after myself. <laughs> what could I call it? My new Richard G. Howe, that's a great name. So that's, that's what it is. So make sure that you have the G in there, and, it, and it's easy to remember because the G stands for good looking. Okay? <laughs> And for some reason, everybody laughs when I say that. I'm not sure if that's good for my self-esteem or not. You know, G's for good looking. They all just burst out in laughter. You go to richardghow.com, and at the top there, you'll see where that arrow's pointing is blinking. The tab is resources. And so when you go to resources, you have four choices. Papers, PDF decks, multimedia, and then material that I put together for my teaching at my church. So you'll want to select PDF decks. And then it will just give you an al alphabetized of all the PDF decks so far that I have. So you'll look for this one, Truth About Truth. Now, it occurred to me, having done this for a while, that a lot of times if, you're, if all you're seeing is just the PDF deck, suppose you see something like, uh, oh, you know, how theology needs philosophy. And there's something we're not talking about this weekend. But you might think, oh, well, I'd like to see what that is. The problem is, it occurred to me, is that a lot of times a PowerPoint slide doesn't necessarily make any sense if you don't hear the lecture that goes along with it. So what that's prompted me to do, I haven't done this yet, I shouldn't tell you this, but anyway, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I'm thinking about, in my PowerPoint PDF decks, just inserting completely irrelevant slides right in the middle of it, so when people go up, hey, well, so what was the uh, kumquat argument for God's existence? Uh, what? You know, right in the middle of your PowerPoint, you have a picture of a kumquat. You know, or something like that. So, uh, I just stuck that in there to make people go, what did, what did that have to do with, uh, with the existence of God? So, and the reason why there are different formats, because my students use these, you might want to uh, do the color one if you're just going to look at it on a computer screen. But then I do black and white with various, uh, you know, how many slides per page. So sometimes the students print these out, bring them to class to take their notes on. That's just why most of them have, have all those choices there. So I invite you to those and uh, all the other PDF decks and then uh, the other resources, multimedia, uh, things by me, things by others, and, and that kind of stuff. And, then, and by the way, if you, if you go all the way back here, uh, let me back up here because this is, this is probably the most important. After the weekend and maybe after about a week and you start getting kind of sad and depressed, so you can just go and there's my picture right there. So you'll go, okay, I'm better now. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, we're already sad and depressed, okay? <laughs> While you're here, we're sad and depressed. All right, so what is truth? Uh, you know, Pilate asked this question to Jesus. What is truth? It's a question that we've uh, had to grapple with. I want to start out by unpacking the question of what is truth by making a distinction between theories of truth and tests for truth. Now, why do I even want to do this? Let me just see if I can convince you there's a problem before I try to solve something. Perhaps someone's here tonight and is thinking, well, 
not really sure why this is even a problem. It sounds like you have an uncanny grasp of the obvious here. The, the thing is, it, in my experience, it has become progressively more difficult in our culture in the United States from the day that I was a teenager. Now, I'm 60 years old, so I was a teenager in the 70s. And even more so, if you go back to, say, when my parents were teenagers. My dad was in the European theater in the Second World War in Korea. Back in those days, if you just said something to somebody, hey, I believe that Christianity is true, they would instantly know pretty much what you mean by that. Now, they might not agree with you that it's true. They might, if you said, I think the Bible is true, they might say, well, I don't think the Bible is true. But at least they knew what you meant when you claimed it was true. But I think in, 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 in a lot of places in our culture, it's getting where when you say something is true to somebody, they might not even be thinking the same thing you're meaning by that word true. You're going to see some examples of what I mean here in a moment. So the problem or the challenge is, is as we're trying to advance the cause of Christ, fulfill the Great Commission, and you have opportunities to share with family, friends, strangers about the gospel, uh, and you're trying to convince them that it's, quote, true, if they've got a corrupted understanding of what it even is to be true, they don't even get what you're saying. And until you get them to a point where they know what you're saying, until they get there, they can't even make a decision about whether they want to accept or reject the claims of Christ on their life. They, they can't even get to that point because they've already been, in effect, corrupted by what it even means to be true. So, it's a sad commentary, I think, on our fallenness as human beings that we have to go back and massage the conversation just to get somebody to a point that they even know what we mean when we say something is true. Because that wasn't the case when I was a teenager. And certainly wasn't if you go farther and farther back in Western uh, culture, Western civilization. People knew what that meant. And, and even today, probably a lot of people still know what that means until they go to university, perhaps or until they start watching some of the uh, popular entertainment media and stuff and get bombarded with these weird views. So let's see what we can discover. So we want to distinguish between a theory of truth and a test for truth. A theory of truth and a test for truth. So suppose somebody came in here and said, it is raining. Nobody said that in the past week here, have they? About it is not raining. That's what nobody said here. Because we're in a mild drought. I actually live in Atlanta now. So I was startled to hear we're in a mild drought in North Georgia. Because all these tropical systems keep coming up Florida panhandle and going right across the Carolinas. And we're all over there in Georgia going, oh, what about us? We're missing all this rain. And you're going, we'll be glad to ship you some. So suppose somebody came in and said, it's raining. And somebody said, is that true? And the next person said, yes. Well, whatever they're saying about the statement, it's raining, when they say that it's true, whatever they're, whatever they're saying about it, that is their theory of truth, whatever that is. So if you go, is, it's raining, is that true? And they say, yes. Well, when they say, yes, it's true that it's raining, whatever they're saying about the statement, whatever that is, that's their theory of truth, all right? Now... How you might go on to discover whether a statement is true, that's going to be your test. 
Uh, and you'll have to forgive me for doing my pirouettes up here. Uh, but I, I got ahead of the tech guys, and so this, this screen back here is not on yet. So that's probably more my fault than anybody else. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Carver's shaking his head. I'm sorry? That's right, that's right. This, the floor is going to open up, and I'll just go down a water slide or whatever and come out. So how you know whether a statement is true, that's your test for truth. So it's the difference between a theory and a test. A theory is how one defines the terms true and truth when you're saying a statement is true. A test is how one discovers. So it's the difference between defining and discovering whether a statement is true or not. That's what we want to parse out here in a moment. And I want to have something to say about both of those. All right? And, and my little clicker here is uh, just right at its range. So if I keep doing this kind of casually doing this, it's not because I'm trying to blind you with my pointer. All right, so let's talk about theories of truth uh, here first, if I can get it to go forward. I might need to get one of you guys to do it. By the way, this picture there, I have to tell you about this picture. That's a picture I took at, in the underground cisterns in Istanbul. So right what you're seeing there at the top of that is the bottom of the street level of Istanbul, Turkey. So these were the emergency water supplies that Constantine had when he moved the, head of the, Rome, the, the uh, headquarters of the Roman Empire there. So you can still go down in there. I don't think they drink it anymore because it's got fish in it and stuff. And it's probably about five feet deep, but you get to go. So I thought, okay, it's a theory of truth that's holding up the foundation of, uh, of life. What are some theories of truth? What do we mean by that? Let me give you a few examples. You might be able to guess from my color scheme that uh, I have a particular, um, uh, this thing is, you might be able to guess from my color theme that I have a particular uh, bias here. Here are at least four theories of truth. I'm only going to talk maybe about two of them uh, besides the, 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 uh, the green one there. Correspondence, coherence, functional, and pragmatic. We're not going to talk about all of them. You can ask during the Q&A, perhaps, or during the Q, if I end up with that debate. You can just ask during the Q. That's a great question. Okay, next question. Yes, okay. We'll do that. And there are actually more than this. You've got ditto theory. You've got disquotational theory. Uh, you know, and, uh, you got, the philosophers are just endless theories of what it means for something to be true. All right, so let's look at these one at a time, at least the few that I want to talk about. First of all is the correspondence. Here's what the correspondence theory of truth is. And you're, again, going to say, how you've got just this incredible grasp of what is obvious to everybody else. This says that a statement is true inasmuch as it corresponds to reality. That's where it gets the name correspondence theory of truth. So, if you say it's raining, then... It would be a true statement if it's actually raining in reality. Whoa! Sign me up for that philosophy class. That is profound, right? And it would be a false statement if, in fact, it's not raining in reality. Now, look, it could be raining in LaGrange and not raining in Fayetteville, or it could be raining in LaGrange on Monday and not raining in LaGrange on Tuesday. It could be raining and not raining at different times or in different places. That's all fine. But the, 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 the upshot is, if I say it's raining and it is raining, then that's a true statement. If I say it's raining and it's not raining, then that's a false statement. That's called a correspondence theory of reality. 
All right, well, what can, what can we say? Well, I love the way Aristotle says, which, by the way, this is what happens to you if you study too much philosophy right there. So that, that's usually my students about halfway through the semester. Their eyes are just going to glazed all over. But at any rate, I think I'm about to stick in this. This might have been one of my students. I don't know. But I love the way Aristotle says it. To say of what is that it is not or what is not that it is is false, while to say of what is that it is or what is not that it is not is true. You think I'll do that again? <laughs> I'll probably fall off this stage. I told the students, because I was on a pretty high stage, I said, if I fall off the stage, we just get out of chapel early today. <laughs> you know, who was that weird guy who came and killed himself by falling off the stage this morning? This is Aristotle. It's this 300 and something years before Christ, where he's defining what now philosophers recognize as a correspondence theory of truth. Now, have you ever, have you ever been in someone's home and they have these cross stitch? And you see something like, uh, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. You ever seen those kind of things? I would love to have that. Wouldn't that be cool to have that on a cross stitch hanging in your house? You know, I just think it'd be hilarious if somebody comes over and says, Hey, Richard, uh, you know, thank you and Rebecca for having us over. You know, so you got a nice house here, and they're looking around, and whatever it is, is it not? Is that what? <laughs> what? What is that? It's, like, it's Aristotle, man. It's the correspondence theory of truth. In fact, that's what it would look like right there. <laughs> There, there's, there's Aristotle's correspondence theory of truth with a nice bucolic scene uh, in the back. Do you mind if I take my coat off? He asked after he took his coat off. Like, what are you going to do? Yes, we mind. We hate looking at your white shirt. All right? So there are other theories of truth that we'll look at in a minute, but you might be interested to know, since you probably hold the correspondence theory of truth, because I think most normal people do, that you're in good company as far as uh, philosophy. In fact, there's a lot more that you could, but if you're interested, well, where does uh, Anselm talk about correspondence theory of truth? I can give you that information. I can't do it during the q and I'd have to have my, my notes with me, so don't try that one on me. But, uh, but, but and, and what's interesting about this array, if you know anything about history of ideas, is uh, you, you run a pretty broad spectrum of views about the nature of reality from people as... Uh, as anti-atheist Christian as Bertrand Russell to the consummate Christian thinkers like an Anselm, Augustine Anselm or Aquinas, and then things in between. So it's a wide spectrum of philosophical views, but interestingly, all of these happen to agree about the correspondence theory of truth. But I do need to say something more about, well, okay, I, I kind of understand. You say it's raining. It is raining. That corresponds. But I want to say a little bit more. That's called dramatic pause. So don't try that at home. It's dangerous in public speaking if you don't, if you don't do it a lot, right? No, I just had to. Uh, I told the students this morning, my doctor told me I wasn't getting enough hydrogen in my diet. So I started drinking water now to get some more. It's all the chemists, I guess, get that joke. I mean, nobody else does. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it now. Hydrogen, H2O, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there needs to be something a little bit more said about this idea of correspondence. Because I would submit to you, and this is relevant to biblical interpretation, and even more so, it's relevant to fending off a lot of skeptical attacks on the integrity of the Bible. That skeptics like to jump on the Bible for saying something and trying to say, well... What the Bible said there is not true. 
and because they don't understand, well, look, when, when we say a statement corresponds to, corresponds to reality, there may be different ways it can correspond. Now, uh, let me remind you, Aristotle says, if you say it is and it's not, or say it's not and it is, that's false. If you say it is and it is, or you say it's not and it's not, that's true. So notice this is, the copula there, the verb to be. What do I mean by is? Well, with apologies to everyone who voted for Bill Clinton. <laughs> now see, what was so funny about when, when Bill Clinton was trying to weasel his way out of these allegations of sexual misconduct, and it were, it was, was anyone in, in the building at the same? Well, it depends on what is, is. And, uh, and everybody, understandably, were all like, Pfft. That guy, and all the philosophers are going, oh, I get that. All of a sudden, it's like, that actually makes sense to me. It does depend on what is, is in some context. For example, uh, what about Sherlock Holmes? My favorite uh, actor for Sherlock Holmes is Basil Rathbone. And if I said things about Sherlock Holmes like, well, uh, was Sherlock Holmes a white man or was he a black man? Well, he was a white man in the Conan Doyle. Uh, what about, do you have any vices? Yeah, he was addicted to cocaine. Uh, did he have any associates? Yeah, he had a close friend, an MD named uh, John Watson, and they, they worked together. And I could say a lot of things about Sherlock Holmes that I use the word is, or maybe the past tense was, and you would understand that all to be true, even though there's not a real Sherlock Holmes, is there? You still understand in the context that you could make a true statement about a fictional character. So to say that it corresponds to reality doesn't necessarily mean that it's a literal reality. It could be a fictional reality. It could be a, a reality in the mind of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as he writes. You say, well, I thought Sherlock Holmes was, was, uh, you know, was Belgian. No, no, he's English. And you could make these truth statements, and they're all understood in the context of, but we're talking about a fictional character. It doesn't have to be a Sherlock Holmes in order for the statement to be true. That allows Jesus to give parables, for example. And, we, and people understand, people in his day, just as people in our day, we understand that when he gives a parable, it was a man who was walking and he fell among thieves, that people didn't go, oh yeah, well, what was the guy's name? Well, it was just a, oh, well, you liar. Well, no, it's just a, I'm just giving you an illustration. That's all. I mean, it didn't have to literally be a physically existing human for the thing that, I, that I'm saying to be, quote unquote, true. Uh, even more to the point, uh, suppose that uh, here's two little white kids. Now, if you're old enough, you probably remember the days when, uh, whether you're white or not, you probably played cowboy and Indians, didn't you? Remember those days? Now, now it's cowboy and Native American. Uh, but back in the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s, we, we'd say Indians. We didn't mean anything bad by it. Uh, now, so what if the little boy goes, okay, well, I'm the Indian. Well, what are you going to do? You liar. You're not an Indian. No, I don't mean I'm literally an Indian. I mean I'm pretending to be one. So in other words, we, we don't quarrel with those kind of uses of the is when he says, I am an Indian. You don't hold his feet to the fire to say, well, unless you are literally an Indian, then when you say, I'm an Indian, you're just a liar. You'd say, no, in the context of make-believe that children are doing, we understand the, the little white boy saying he's an Indian and not accuse him of a falsehood because we understand he's using it in an ex sort of a broader sense than just a literal sense of, of is. 
So when truth is when a proposition corresponds to reality, but there are a number of ways that a proposition can correspond to reality. Let me just give you a few from the scriptures. Probably the most obvious would be literal. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. For they were fishermen. Well, literally, they were fishermen, right? That's pretty straightforward. All right, how about, how about this? Uh, I can get it to go here. Next slide. Whoops. Make sure I got the right one. All right, here we go, because you've got to see the transition. How about allegorically? You can, you can state something allegorically. For example, out of Galatians, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise which things are symbolic. In other words, he's, he's using this episode from the Old Testament as an allegory of, of contemporary truths in the lives of the Galatians and the rest of us who read it. In fact, that, that word symbolic is allegorumina, where we get the English word allegory. That's the Greek word translated symbolic, at least in the, in the New King James. Uh, how about metaphorically? There, that, by the way, that's the... Uh, Bavarian Alps. I just like to. One of my, my wife and I, we, the, our main indulgence is we get to travel internationally. See, I married a missionary kid, okay, who grew up in Brazil. Now, I grew up in Mississippi. So, my idea of international travel was seeing Niagara Falls from the Canadian side. You know, you go across the pedestrian bridge and go, ooh, wow. And then, ooh, I feel real cosmopolitan now, man. I'm back in a foreign country. And then you walk back across the bridge and you're back in the, in the U.S. <laughs> You know, that, that was it for me as a little Mississippi boy, okay? So she thought, okay, when, uh, first thing we got to do is expand your horizons because she not only grew up in Brazil, but her father's actually Russian. So you talk about a cosmopolitan family there. So I have to, I'm still trying to catch up. So she, she and I get to travel the world. So. But what about metaphorically? Well, uh, for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Well, gee, uh, how can mountains sing and trees clap their hands? Well, because it's just a metaphor. It's not literally, they don't literally have hands and vocal cords. They just metaphorically have hands hands and vocal cords. It's a totally normal way to, for people to talk. Bible talks exactly the same way that normal people talk in these various figures of speech. But I can guarantee you, you can find on the internet skeptics who will criticize the Bible for behaving exactly the way most normal people behave. Of course, if it didn't do that, then they'd be criticizing the Bible for being so eccentric, who could even believe it? But when it all of a sudden says, well, it talks just like the rest of us uh, there. What about another way to correspond to reality? How about analogically? Again, from the scriptures. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Well, you know as well, if not better than I, that the scriptures are not saying that we walk by faith and not with our eyes open. So as Christians, we have to be blind and walk around. No, it's saying, when it says, not by sight, faith and sight become just allegories of the, of the exigencies of life, of, of putting your confidence in the way things appear to be versus putting your confidence in the way things God says they are, but don't necessarily appear that way. Like, for example, we're all going to be raised from the dead with incorruptible bodies and live forever. 
<laughs> kind of doesn't feel real incorruptible right now because it's not, right? So I have to decide, well, God says He's going he's to raise me from the dead. I'm going to have an incorruptible body, and then we're, we're going to live forever. That's what He says. I have to decide, well, am I going to trust Him uh, or not? That's what this is all about, isn't it? There. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an, uh, 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 an allegory, or rather an analogy, of the way we walk in, in, uh, in, this, in this life. How about symbolically? The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and the sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscious. So all of this through Hebrews where it's comparing and contrasting the way the high priest does stuff in the Old Testament tabernacle versus the way Jesus does things and it's saying these are symbolic of what's going on. I mean, the high priest had to go in every year. Jesus does once and for all, a sacrifice once and for all. The high priest had to cleanse himself before he could do it. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. And you see all these contrasts and these kind of things. And so all of this stuff in the tabernacle, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is symbolic of what is true for us in a spiritual sense who come to know Christ through, uh, 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 through faith. Interesting, the Greek word translated symbolic there in the New King James is parabole, where we get the English word parable, uh, is where that word comes from, translated symbolic, at least in the, in the New, New King James. Uh, now, my favorites are coming up. Uh, hyperbolically, this is a really big one that the critics love to jump on the Bible about. What would be an example of hyperbole? Hyperbole is when you exaggerate something for the, for the sake of emphasis. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts and their camel were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. Without number? You mean there's an infinite number of camels that couldn't all fit on the... In the not only couldn't fit in the east, they couldn't fit on the whole planet. And the skeptics, again, love this kind of stuff. If they're, they're, they're uncharitable, I think, in a lot of ways. They're not, no, it's just, it's just an emphasis... It's, it's, it's an exaggeration for the sake of emptiness. Everybody was at the conference to hear Ramon this past weekend. What do you mean everybody? You mean King killed Kim Jong-un from North Korea? He was there? Well, no, I didn't. Okay, then it wasn't everybody, you liar. <laughs> it was me. I was just exaggerating for the sake of emphasis when you say, well, everybody was there except Kim Jong-un, or who picked your favorite despot uh, in, in the world. Uh, how about phenomenologically, oh boy, I tell you, we get a lot of mileage out of this one. I have a whole different presentation where I, I uh, show the significance of phenomenological language, or another word you might hear is observational language. Basically, phenomenologically means where a writer or a speaker says something by saying it how things just appear. For example, uh, well, I'll give you an example. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. Now, we all know, though, the sun doesn't rise. At least, I guess we know. The, the astronomers tell us, well, actually, the sun doesn't rise. Actually, it's with respect to the earth. It's standing still, and the earth is revolving on its axis. So it has the appearance of, of rising. It's called phenomenological language. It just, in, in fact, we still do this today. The weatherman doesn't say, so earth rotation underneath the stationary sun will be at 702 tomorrow morning. He doesn't do that on the weather, does he? He says, sunrise tomorrow? And I, I'm sure the atheists don't go, sunrise tomorrow, you're not even a scientist, you're an ingrate. 
Don't you know the sun doesn't... No, they don't do that. But for some reason, for reasons I guess we both know, the critics will jump on the Bible for speaking phenomenologically. And they'll try to leverage very, very narrow literal readings here and there in order to try to get the Bible to appear to conflict with itself. And I go, you're being uncharitable because you would never read your newspaper that way. You would never read most things that you read. You would never talk to other human beings without factoring in uh, just this rich array of figures of speech that we use when, when we discuss things uh, or when we talk about things and we ob observe things. Uh, there's also an informal, what I mean here is sort of, sometimes the Bible will just talk in roundabout terms and avoid just absolute precision. For example, uh, all men who were numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. But another accounting of the same verse, and Moses says, the people whom I'm among are 600,000 men on foot. Well, wait a minute, I thought it was 6,300, 500, whatever, 50. Did they all die off? No, he's just rounding off. So just calm down. <laughs> he's just, he's just, it's not an error. It's just the way people normally talk. Bible talks the same way. Sometimes they just round off the number uh, for, for whatever reason. But I think my favorite one is metonymically. So that's the word for the weekend there. So let's try to, I tried, it took me the longest time to figure out how to make an uh, adjective out of the word Metonymy is a metonymy is a figure of speech and in grammar. Uh, what's a metonymy? Let me give you one from the scriptures. I get it to re render here. Or okay, so far I'm up to four four clicks before it does. I'm trying to see how high I can get. It's 2005, 2006, 2000. Everybody's <laughs> the centurion. This is a, this is actually a critic a common thing that critics bring up against the scriptures to try to argue that. It's not inerrant. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Remember when the centurion had his servant that was sick and he goes to Jesus. So Matthew says, the centurion said, presumably to Jesus in the context, Lord, uh, uh, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But when Luke tells the same story, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So the critic goes, well, now wait a minute. Matthew says that the centurion said this, but Luke says that the centurion sent his servants to Jesus to say this. That is called a metonymy in, in grammar. Metonymy is when uh, <clears throat> something stands in the place of something else. Like you might hear the White House today said that the meeting was be moved. Like the White House? You got a house that talks? No, no, no. White House is just, it stands in the place of the president. Or more to the point, suppose you heard on the news, President Obama told Benjamin Netanyahu today, and you're going, President Obama was in Israel? Or Netanyahu was in Washington? No. President Obama says something. His diplomatic representatives in Jerusalem say something to Netanyahu. Netanyahu says something back to his diplomatic representative who says something back over here who says it back to the president. But when those diplomats speak in the name of the president or the prime minister, that is the president talking. Not physically, but in, in, in a metonymically sense that the president authorizes this guy to actually say what he says. Or you might even use the White House, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, guy that speaks to the press corps. 
So that's called a metonymy. So both of these are, 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 lit, are, are true, just not literally true. They're, they're a metonymy of one another. So a lot of different ways you can correspond uh, to reality. Well, what about the other theories of truth? Let me just say uh, something about at least one, if not two, uh, of the others. Another one that's troublesome is a functional theory of truth. Now, this one is interesting because this issue of uh, functional theory versus a correspondence theory. Okay, that was a dramatic pause right in the middle of a sentence. So I'm really going out. I'm really taking a, a chance, uh, you know. But I'm a professional, so... Uh, don't worry, I can, I can handle it. Back in, I was a casualty of the inerrancy controversy back in the 70s. Some of you may be old enough to remember that a number of American denominations, including the Southern Baptists, of which I am, but also the, uh, the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church and independent seminaries like Fuller Seminary and, and Concordia uh, and, and things like that. Well, they weren't independent, but other seminaries were embroiled in controversy over whether whether or not the Bible was inerrant, and if it was inerrant, what did that literally mean? And so, if you don't know this already, you might be interested to know, and it would be something fun to, to sort of uh, research if you're not already familiar. In order to try to address the question, well, what do we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant? This multi-pan-denominational consortium of theologians, Bible scholars, historians, philosophers, and others gathered together for an ad hoc meetings over a 10-year period and carved out uh, eight volumes of what do we mean by inerrancy that were published over this period of time. It was called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And one of the things they discovered at the very front end, in fact, this is what sort of precipitated the, the gathering together to say, we need to, we need to really address this. This is getting to be a problem within the church was the specter of functional view of truth. What does that mean? That uh, means the Bible is true if it fulfills its intended purpose or its function. So, in other words, the people like uh, Jack Rogers or, or uh, um, um, Daniel Fuller out at Fuller Seminary would say, well, look, the Bible's purpose is to lead you to a saving knowledge of, of Christ. That's its purpose. So, it's true when it does that even if, while doing that, it says things that are false. So that's how they would get around, well, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed, even though Jesus said that, it was an error. But that's not the point. You, know, they would, you would hear things like, oh, the Bible's not a book on botany, so it doesn't matter if it has that as an error. You know? Or you'll hear people say, well, you know, we know that Genesis doesn't make sense, but after all, Genesis is not a scientific book. So all of these kind of, well, it's not a scientific book, so it doesn't matter whether what it says is, doesn't comport with what science says. All of that is, stems out of this sort of functional view of saying, well, what it means for the Bible to be true and have authority is just that it kind of does what it's intended to do, and it can do that in the course of, of uh, having errors uh, on it. Now, I think I might have an example here. Let me see if I do. I don't remember if I hid this slide or not. Yeah, here's Daniel Fuller. Although the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, though that's what the verse says, according to Daniel uh, Fuller in Matthew 13. Although it's not the smallest of all seeds, yet Jesus referring to it as such 
refer to it as such, and here's the reason. Because to have gone contrary to their mind on the smallest seed would have so diverted their attention from the knowledge that would bring salvation to their soul that they might as well have failed to hear all these all-important truths. So in other words, that's not the function of the Bible, to give you absolute truths. This is what Fuller is saying. So it, people were scratching their heads because then you would have Daniel Fuller and others going, oh, I believe the Bible is completely with, without error. I believe the Bible is 100% inerrant, but I think it has mistakes in it. What's going, what? How can it have mistakes in it and it be without error? Oh, well, because to have an error is just to fail to fulfill your function. It doesn't have to do with factual correspondence theory. truth. You see the... You see the, the uh, uh, how, how critical these issues are in things as precious to us like the inerrancy of our Scripture. In fact, on my website, if you go back to the same resources tab, but click on the papers, the papers option, and scroll down, there's a paper that I've uploaded, PDF, written by my mentor, Norm Geisler, who was a co-founder of our seminary in Charlotte. And the paper's title, uh, The Concept of Truth in the Inerrancy Debate. It was written in 1980. I think, 79 or 80. And it's just as timely as it ever was. And what he's calling concept of truth, I'm, call, I'm just calling here theory of truth. And he's, he's just outlining, look, at, look how sinister these corrupted views about what truth is have direct impact on something as critical as whether your Bible is true or not. I mean, it's just, there's so much at stake in these things. Um, but... The problem with the functional theory is you couldn't even define what a functional theory of truth is without using the correspondence theory of truth. Why? Because suppose, suppose somebody came in and says, well, the functional theory of truth is uh, something is true if it's in French. But if it's in English, it's false. And people go, well, that's not the functional theory of truth. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And they're arguing about what the functional theory is but what it would mean to be true that this is the functional theory is that your theory, your definition, corresponds to the reality of what a functional theory is. Does that make sense? You're, you're using the correspondence theory to, to, start to define truth functionally. can't get away from the correspondence theory. Now, what is this? Hmm? No, it's a picture of a spoon. I know, that's a cheap one. That's okay, that's cheating. I, I love that, though. I set you up for it. Yeah, it's a spoon. Let me show you one other thing critical about functional versus uh, uh, correspondence and, and other dimensions in philosophy. I can't help but just say this at this juncture. If you tried to just say, well, what, what is a spoon? How would you define what a spoon is? I would submit to you rightfully that you would probably define what a spoon is by what it does. In other words, what it is to be a spoon is something that functions a certain way. I think that's perfectly legitimate. It just, if somebody say, well, what's a spoon? Well, it's a thing that spoons. That's what, you just, what's spooning? Well, that's when you do this, you know? Probably not with your arms out like that, like you, unless you're like a Neanderthal or something, or <laughs> you're a big club or whatever. Um, so that's perfectly legitimate. Now, so suppose you were... Uh, you're eating your honey nut Cheerios or your uh, honey bunches of oats with the almonds, of course. Suppose you're eating your cereal at breakfast and somebody comes up to you and says, you're eating your cereal with a false spoon. All right, now, 
The first thing you're going to say is, what are you doing in my house at breakfast? Okay, so get out of here. I'm still in my pajamas. <laughs> come back later, and then we can talk about spoons. But I think the, the second thing that would come to your mind is, it's not that you would disagree with them and go, well, who are you to say i got a false spoon? i got the truest spoon. In... It's not even that you would disagree with them. You would probably go, okay, that doesn't make sense. I don't know what a false spoon is. Why? Because rightfully, we just define what it is to be a spoon by just what it does. It just is what it does. We just define it functionally. We don't define it by its, its essence, so to speak. Now, what is this? A picture of a baby. Yes, yeah, so it, it took you one slide to get that joke, right? So, so, so you ask yourself, well, what is this? Well, it's a human being. Well, what is a human being? I would submit to you that what it is to be a human being is not function like the spoon. It's something else. It has what philosophers call an essence or sometimes a nature or what theologians call a soul that makes it, a, it makes it the kind of thing it is regardless of its function. Now, you might know that it's a human because of its function. That's fine. But that's not what makes it human. That's why if a human loses his sight, he's not less of a human. Oh, he's paralyzed from the waist down. He's only half the man he used to be. It's like, no, that's, his function flows out of his nature, but that's not, that's not what makes him what it is. It's the other way around. What it is makes him function the way that he does. But, but the spoon, what it does makes it what it is. Now, why does that matter and why do I bring it up? Two reasons. One, because I think that a lot of the, the debate between the uh, pro-life and the abortion community is, is, is sort of ships passing in the night because many, in my experience, many pro-choice or pro-abortionists have a functional view of human beings. So that's why you hear language like, well, it's not a person until it has a brainwave or until it has a sense of self-awareness or until it has a sense of a projection to the future. And they give all these functional criteria to, to make it be a person. Whereas typically, in my experience, people that are pro-life would say it is a human as soon as it comes into existence. And then it eventually, these, these functions begin to develop in it. But what it is is just because of its very nature that makes it human as opposed to a horse or a whale or, or something like that. So if you're, if you're standing at the edge of the, of the mine where they mine out the metal that they're going to make the spoons out of, what sense would it make if two people look and the guy says, there's a, I see a spoon down there. Say, what? There, right? There's a spoon. Where? See that glitter? That's not a spoon. That's just the, the ore that we're going to smelt and make the metal to make the spoon. It wouldn't make any sense for a person to call that unrefined metal down in the ore, it wouldn't make a sense for them to call that a spoon, would it? Because you realize, no, that's not a spoon until it functions as a spoon. But that's the way I think a lot of pro-choice or pro-abortion people hear us when we look at the zygote in a womb and say, that's a human being. And it's not even that they disagree with us. I think a lot of times they just go, what are you... That doesn't make sense to me. That would be like saying the metal in the ore is, is a spoon. They were, they're thinking it's not a human being because it doesn't have all these functions. I don't know how to do this, but I've tried to encourage my students. Somehow we've got to get the, the uh, abortionists to understand that what we mean 
when we talk about pro-life is something about the essence or nature of these things. Now, they may still go on to disagree with us, fine, but at least we've made, I think, an advance in the debate. But as long as we let people get away with this functional understanding of humanity, I think the, uh, the debate is, is going to be just, just in, in a gridlock or whatever. Now, the second reason why I think it's relevant, this function versus nature essence, a little bit oblique from the question of truth, but I'll get right back to it. But I, I have also discovered, in, at least in my experience, that a lot of people have a functional understanding of religion, if I may use the word religion to include us as Christians. You know, a lot of times people say, well, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Yeah, yeah, I know, but they don't give you tax exempt, you know, 501 c for having a relationship, okay? So religion is actually a, a legitimate term to use for legal purposes and sociological purposes and stuff. So in that regard, we're a religion too, like Hinduism and stuff like that. And I've discovered that a lot of people have a functional understanding of religion. So they think of a religion is just something that fulfills a certain function in your life. Ah, it gives you a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself. It gives you a sense of cohesiveness. It gives you a sense of being a part of something that will continue after you're gone, that you can pass on to your progeny, and a lot of different things. And they're describing what religion does. Whereas, as Christians, we don't deny that religion might do that for somebody. But we want to be understood to say, no, as Christians, we're making claims about reality that are either true or false. There either is or there isn't a God. Jesus either did or didn't die for our sins. These are factual claims we're making and force the, the opposer to deal with it on those grounds instead of just saying, uh, well, you know, Jesus does it for you, that's kind, Krishna does it for me, sort of like the way people are with hobbies. You know, because it wouldn't make sense for somebody to say, you have a hobby? Yeah, I, I, I got coin collecting. Oh, that's a false hobby. What do you mean? I got the only true hobby, and that's model airplane building. That, that would sound stupid. You go, no, if you like model airplane building, that's fine. I like, you know, coin collecting. They like something else. And so everybody's got their hobbies, and one hobby's just as good as another because it has this function in your life. That's the way people are with religion, isn't it? What, but instead, we need to help people understand this is sort of what this weekend is about and any apologetics conference is about. We need to get people to understand we are making claims about reality. And the claims we're making either do or don't correspond. And then once they go, okay, I understand, there either is or isn't a God. It can't be, well, there's a God for you, but there's not a God for me. That's like saying, well, it's raining for you, but it's not raining for me. No, it's either raining or it's not raining. So if you don't think there's a God, then let's talk about it. Let's look at the evidence. If you don't think Jesus rose from the dead, let's look at the evidence. What's the Evidence and arguments for it. If it's true, then you should believe it. If it's not true, then neither of us should believe it. And that way, I think we can get farther along in trying to advance uh, the cause of Christ. And there were days in our culture where we didn't have to worry too much about this. And this dovetails right in back to the presentation here on truth. Dovetails in with this other theory of truth I wanted to just warn you about. And that's a pragmatic theory. And that says a statement is true in as much as it works or is practical. If it just works in your life, then that's true for you. In fact, uh, let me just skip ahead here. Uh, hang on a second. There's a great book. Let me go back one. Here's the first cover. Paul Copan, who's a Christian apologist, Christian philosopher, wrote a book titled True for You But Not for Me, Deflating the Slogans that Leave Christians Speechless. It's a great, great book. Now, it's actually been republished with a different subtitle, so there's a new cover. True for you, but not for me, overcoming objections to Christian faith. Now, one of my brushes with greatness, you know what a brush with greatness is? You know, a little event in your life where you just have this 
brief encounter with, with greatness. One of my brushes with greatness. I have a handful of them. Besides knowing when to strategically take a pause. Is that my wife and Paul Copan were childhood friends. Because Paul is Russian uh, heritage. So Paul's parents and my wife's grandparents lived in the Russian community up in Connecticut. So when she'd go up to see her grandparents, she's out. And she and Paul were little childhood friends. So it's like, yeah, Paul Copan... Christian philosopher and apologist, friend of my wife, <laughs> childhood friend of my wife. Thank you very much. If you want me to sign his book for you, I'll be glad, <laughs> glad to do that. Richard Howe, married to the girl that knew Paul Copan when he was about five years old. It would be cool to do that in somebody's book. Nobody's ever asked me to do that. Uh, <laughs> but you never know. I'm holding out hope. All right, so let me, let me press on. Because I need to say something in our last few minutes together about tests for truth. How do we, well, first of all, what is a test for truth and how do we do that? What are tests for truth? It seems to me that there are at least, so I'm allowing myself for someone to come up and go, well, here's another one besides the two you mentioned. I go, yeah, that, that's fine. But there seems to be at least two things that are common to all tests for truth. And I remind you, a test for truth is just how you discover whether a statement is true. Your theory is what you mean by saying it's true. Your test, how do I know that it's true? How do I know that it's raining or whatever the statement is? Jesus rose from the dead or God exists. But there seems to be at least two things that are common to all tests for truth. One of those is logic. That Every test for truth at least has to follow the protocols, whatever logic is. And I may say a few words about logic as we, as we wind this down here. Uh, but every test for truth has to more or less follow the rules of logic. It can't just be incoherent, you know, uh, where somebody says, well, how do you know God exists? Well, mumbo dog face with banana patch. What? Mumbo dog face with banana patch. What? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You've you got to have some kind of rational structure to what you're saying. I don't know what mumbo... Those, those of you who are old enough, that's an old Steve Martin joke. So you can ask me about that later. Uh, that, well, what was the Steve Martin joke? That, the the punchline to which was mumbo dog face with a banana patch. So whatever else we want to say about logic, I would submit for your consideration that all tests for truth have to follow the protocols... And, 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 and rules, uh, if you will, of coherent logical thinking, coherent patterns of logical inferences from premises to conclusions and, and these kind of things. I'll say something about logic here as we wind it up. The other thing seems to me that all tests for truth have in common is language. That is to say, we communicate when we're trying to convince somebody else by the sound application of logic that the statement we just made, it is raining, is actually true, we have obviously communicate that through language. Now, again, these are areas where perhaps you're looking at and you go, how, you just got this incredible grasp of what's obvious to everybody else, okay, as a philosopher. But trust me, this stuff gets so assaulted in the academic uh, area, and, and don't think that, and I know you wouldn't think this, but sometimes people just think, well, who cares what goes on, on in Chapel Hill or in Raleigh or, or you know, uh, what was the school we were talking about over supper tonight, the, the, the blue and gold uh, uh, pastor, what's that? East Carolina. 
Who cares what goes on in these campuses? Because what goes on on the academy, and if you've ever heard Simon Brace talk about this in previous uh, Community Baptist Church conferences, he talks a lot. He has a, he has a lecture titled uh, Spiritual Warfare. If you haven't heard it, go on the internet and find it. Because what happens at the academy eventually in, trickles down to the rest of us in, in society. In fact, a lot of the stuff we're dealing with is stuff that began uh, with the philosophers in the past few centuries that were esoteric, ivory tower. Now, all of a sudden, it's the latest sitcom that we're all feeding, not you, but I'm saying we as editorial we as, as Americans. So, same thing's true with language there. I'll tell you a brief, just a real quick anecdote in this regard. I was sitting in my office at the seminary. My brother Tom, uh, among other things, his area of expertise is in philosophy of language and, and philosophy of hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. And so, uh, these two women came to see him, but he was not on campus that day, so they, you know, they got plan B, which was the other Howell boy. At, at the seminary, which is really not my area, but I was happy to talk to him. One of these women was one of our graduates. She's actually now finishing her PhD with us. The other was an associate of hers because they both taught at a Christian high school in Charlotte. And they were very distraught. They said, look, we, we, our students come through our Christian uh, school, probably very similar to Wayne Christian School in this regard, and we, uh, we do our best to equip them and ground them in their Christian faith so that when they go out to the university, they're not just blindsided by evolution and Darwinism and moral relativism. They're, they've already been sort of, sort of equipped, at least to, to some degree, so they can go out. They said, we're, we're doing that only to find our students being stumbled in their faith in the English department. And I just, I said, okay, i got to hear this story. I mean, this was years ago. I didn't even have a concept. What in the world would go on in an English department that would stumble a Christian young person in his faith? What could possibly be going on? You know what it was? Unlike the science classes, they, they could, they, they're expecting the evolution. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know. They're expecting that. Maybe in some other classes, they're expecting the skepticism about the Bible or the skepticism about God's existence. And I'm not saying those are easy things to dismiss. I'm just saying they're, they're already aware of that and their, their guard is a little bit up. But they go in the English department and they're learning at the universities, some of them, that it is impossible for you to get objective meaning from a written text. That when you read the text, be one example, when you read a text, whether it's Antigone from Sophocles to Shakespeare to your Bible to uh, you know, Charlotte Observer, whatever the uh, favorite newspaper or lack thereof is around uh, uh, LaGrange. That whenever you read a text, this is the argument they make, your life experiences that you've grown up with inevitably is brought to that text. And so whatever meaning is in that text gets mixed up with your life experiences and you construct this new meaning that's not in the text. It's called constructivism, among other things. Now, you may go, okay, well, that just sounds goofy, all right? But it is very subtle and sophisticated when you hear these academics try to make their arguments for them. So what was the implication that these young people were drawing? Well, then I, I've, told, I've been taught all my life that this was God's book, that this was God's Word. So you're telling me that when I, when I read that, 
I can't get any objective meaning because everything I read, I alter its meaning with my own worldview and whatever they want to do and create a new meaning. That's what they were being taught. And the kids were going, well, then what's the point of reading my Bible? So we go, wow, somebody better talk about this. Well, somebody, a lot of people do, including uh, my brother. So that's why I just punt at this point and just recommend uh, his book, Objectivity and Biblical Interpretation, which you can get for like $1.298 on you know, Amazon or whatever it is now uh, there. This was, this was his doctoral dissertation at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Woohoo, right? Um, studied under uh, Russ Bush there. Some of you may have known Dr. Bush before he went to be with the Lord. Now, here's, this was written in the late 90s. Norm Geisler wrote the foreword to, as you see there. Some of you may know Norm Geisler, the big-time apologist. When Geisler wrote the foreword, the last thing he said in his foreword was, in my 45 years of teaching, I've seen nothing like this. You know what Tom discovered in his doctoral research? Among evangelical Christians, theologians and philosophers or whatever, among evangelicals, I'm not talking about radicals, I'm not talking about liberals, I'm talking about evangelicals. Among evangelicals that write on the subject of biblical interpretation, he found only one who said there was objective meaning that you could know in the biblical text. Now, there may be more that are saying it now, but in the late, late 90s, he found one. That was Walt Kaiser from uh, Trinity. Some of you may know his name. He's a big-time Old Testament scholar. Now, that ought to just startle you and just take your breath away. You, you mean to tell me that our own generals and our own army are telling us that we can't even get the meaning of the text from God's Word? Or is that what you're telling me? That's what he discovered. And I think 70-something sources. And I'm not saying that all biblical theologians. I'm saying the ones that wrote about hermeneutics. A lot of people just did Bible interpretation and certainly did believe there was meaning that you could know. He's not talking about them. And that's probably more than, than not. But the, but the technicians who were writing on this subject, he found only one out of this wide array of evangelicals that actually believed in objective meaning. So don't get me started on that. Let me just take the last few minutes. You guys doing okay? All right, we're slated to the end at 8.30. Was that Eastern time? It's, it's like California time. Oh, we got six more hours, whatever it is. It's not six hours. I'd put you out in the Pacific, I guess, whatever. Let me just say a few things about logic uh, to, to wrap this up as we're talking about truth. I mentioned the laws of logic. These are just these in undeniable ways in which we think as human beings, the way God has created us. So what would be an example of a law of logic? Well, there's really three of them. This was life-changing when I first learned it uh, under R.C. Sproul here. Uh, first is the law of non-contradiction, then the law of excluded middle, and then the law of identity. Let's see these one at a time. Here's what the law of non-contradiction says in logic. A thing cannot be both A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. It could be A and not A at different times, or A in one sense and not A in a different sense, but it can't be A and not be A in exactly the same way at exactly the same time. That's a contradiction. It's incoherent. Or another way to say it is, a thing cannot both exist and not exist at the same time and in the same sense. It can't both be a God and not be a God at the same time in the same sense. 
It's, it's incoherent. Or another way to say it is, a statement cannot be both true and not true at the same time and in the same sense. So these are just three different ways of saying the law. In fact, the first one, this is for all the philosophers out there, because I know they're just, our churches are just full of philosophers. <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, a sad joke, but a joke nonetheless. The first one has to do with essence. The second one has to do with existence. And the third one has to do with truth value. But they are just three different ways, either stating the law in terms of the essence of a thing, stating the law in terms of the existence of a thing, or stating the law in terms of truth value of propositions about things. That's the law of non-contradiction. Uh, I have this t-shirt. This is an artist rendering, but one of my students, actually his wife, made this t-shirt for me. Uh, that is the law of non-contradiction right there in truth functional logic symbol. And then that they gave, and this was a joke. Some of you may know, remember this joke. Remember the old, when seatbelts first became mandatory? Some of you may be old enough to remember that. And so the public service announcement that flooded the television back then was, uh, once it became mandatory by law, it said, seatbelts, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. So I used to joke about that in my classes. I'd say, non-contradiction, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. And, they, and so two of my students, or a student and his wife, made a t-shirt. And that gets a lot of looks when you wear it around the mall because people are trying to figure out what the X, what that squiggly line. It's hilarious. And you can watch them trying to... I love the way the medieval Arabic philosopher summarized. This is sort of deliberately tongue-in-cheek, perhaps. Those who deny first principle, that's the law of non-contradiction. Those who deny first principle should be beaten and burned until they admit that to be beaten is not the same as to not be beaten and to be burned is not the same as to not... <laughs> Well, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. Okay, whoa, I believe it. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a difference between being burned and not being burned. Yes, there is. Okay, that's the law of non-contradiction. That's all I'm trying to say. All right, so come back tomorrow and we'll go on to the other laws of logic. I don't think I can live through it. I don't know if I want to do that or not. But it's just hilarious. Uh, uh, we see it in the Scriptures. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you notice what happens there is God says, Lest you die, and Satan says, You will not surely die. Or at least Eve says, God says, You will die. Now notice, when Satan contradicts God's word there, there, Moses didn't, okay, hang on, let's go do our logic class, you know, where he's got his, his Hebrew PowerPoint. Okay, Hebrews, this is the law of non-contradiction. No, this is just the way people would normally think, unless and until they get disabused of normal thinking by just the continual increased corruption of our minds. And now we see it now institutionalized through a lot of our universities in, in Western culture, where they're trying to deny the very groundwork of thinking itself. Uh, and it's all, for, I think, ultimately for the purpose of undermining uh, the gospel. Uh, how about the law of excluded middle? Well, a thing can't be both A and not A, but it either is A or not A. There's no third alternative. It's either A or it's not A, in terms of what it is, its essence. Or it either exists or it doesn't exist. Or it either is true or it's not true. That's just the way the law of excluded middle. It can't be both, but it's got to be one of them. There's no third alternative. That's what excluded middle means. There's no middle, middle ground. 
You see this in the Scriptures. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make, else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. It's not a third alternative. It's either good or bad. And the fruit is going to reveal the kind of tree that it is. Again, Jesus doesn't interrupt and give His disciples a little excursus in disquisition. Whew, I had to use the word excursus and disquisition before we ran out of time. So I, <laughs> I got them both in in one sentence. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Whew. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it or not, but I was watching real carefully. But he doesn't do that. It, that's just the way normally people would think. Were it not for the fact that we're getting progressively more darkened, again, editorial we. About the law of identity. Well, if a thing is A, then it's A. Can't be both A and not A. It's either A or not A. And if it's A, then it's A. That's the law of identity. Uh, existence. Uh, if a thing exists, then it exists. Or truth value, if a statement is true, then it is true. Now, again, it, it almost sounds humorous to say this, but maybe you know this already. In academics, you would just be, you would just be mortified how sophisticated an assault on this can actually sound among, uh, to academics of what they can do with this. It's subtle and it's corrosive, I, I submit to you. Uh, I'm still trying to sell you on the project. I'm almost finished. I'm still trying to convince you this is an important topic. Yeah, yeah, we, we got it already. We, we, we sat through it this long. You see this in the Scriptures. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you uh, unto me. So we know that God is who He is. He isn't who He's not. And who He is, that's, you know, who He is. It's just an invariant uh, truth. You see these laws of logic. Now, how do logic and reality hook up? I would submit that laws of logic are undeniably true. Because if somebody said, uh, well, I don't think logic applies to reality. Well, is that statement... A logical statement? Do you think that statement applies to reality? Well, if they say no, well then shut up. I don't need to listen to you. If they say yes, then it's self-refuting. It's like saying, I can't speak anything in English. Well, you just said something in English. You just refuted yourself. So you cannot refute the laws of logic without using the laws of logic in your refutation. They're never not there. No, despite anyone's protest, they never deny the laws. You have to use them to uh, attack them. Also, reality is knowable. People say, well, I, you know, I just don't think we can, we can know reality. Well, do you know we can't know reality? Well, no. Well, then shut up, because you don't know reality. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we can know reality. Okay, so you just refuted yourself then, because you just admitted something you could know. I, I'm tempted when people, this hasn't happened to me yet, but I'm tempted the next time someone says something like, well, I just don't think it's possible for us to know True, with certainty what, what our senses tell us. And I'm going to go, so, but why should I believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary? And they go, what? You just, you just asked me why I should believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And I'm asking you, why do you think I shouldn't? He goes, no, I didn't ask you that. I said I didn't think we could trust our senses. I go, see, there you did it again. You asked me, why should I believe in the perpetual... And get them to go until they get exasperated because I'm not saying what they're actually... Oh, so you do think I can trust my senses at least long enough to know what you're saying, right? Yeah, I guess I do. It's just, it's just self-refuting to say I can't know uh, reality. Uh, 
Uh, now, there are a few objections. I want to deal with only one, and this will be the last one. I've got two minutes. Pastor, are we okay? All right. Uh, well, let me deal with, uh, with the first one here. Uh, and uh, it's out of Isaiah 55. Now, I do a Bible study, if you can call it that, that I've assembled over the years. It's titled, What Does This Verse Mean to You? And the subtitle is, The Most Commonly Taken Out of Context Verses, at least most commonly that I've ever seen, taken out of context verses. And I just go through a whole array of verses that in my experience, I just go, that's not even, that's not even what it's saying in the context. And pretty close to the top of the list is Isaiah 55. I don't think I've ever heard this verse preached on that wasn't preached to make a point that is not the context at all. It's completely out of context. Because here's what Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Every time I've ever heard this verse taught on, preached about, discussed, uh, is the, the person will make the point, well, see, our logic's not like God's logic. See, God has a way of thinking about stuff that's just... Now, I understand probably they're getting at the point that, well, God's infinite in His, underst- infinite in his knowledge and understanding. I understand that. And, but that's not what this verse is talking about.